You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bowes, McKinney and Evans, and the Bowes Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and the folks there are going to love this podcast, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We're pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Notre Dame great, college Hall of Famer, All-American, Chris Zorich. Mr. Zorich, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. I do appreciate it. I'm excited. Well, uh, we make no bones that we are what's called a reversible jacket here in Indiana. And that is the Leaders and Legends podcast roots for IU basketball, and we root for Notre Dame football. How awesome is that? Well, it depends on whether someone from Purdue is on the podcast. <laughs> your, we want to talk about your career and your upbringing and what you're doing now, including your uh, turn as a podcast host. <laughs> I don't know if it's, uh, thank you for calling it a host, but I'm not sure if I'm a host, a moderator, or some guy who's bored and wanted to kind of do something. So I have no idea what that means. <laughs> But first, before we uh, talk about your uh, upbringing, because I know how much that factors into the Chris Zorich story, I want to please thank Christian Park legend, Casey Branham, a friend of mine since uh, uh, Hall & Oates was at the top of the charts, or even before. Wow. This, wouldn't awesome. have, this podcast wouldn't happen without Casey's friendship. He's one of the best people you ever meet. So Casey, if you're listening, I thank you very much. Chris, you were born in the, grew up in the south side of Chicago, as I recall. Uh, your upbringing there uh, was sparse, to say the least. Talk to the Leaders and Legends audience, please, a little bit about how you grew up and how that shaped your hunger for success on the football field. So it's really interesting, Rob. So the idea of kind of leadership um, really kind of came to me at a young age and not necessarily with me, but through my mom. So I've had a chance to be around some very successful folks. Um, had a chance to be around some great coaches, Mike Ditka, Lou Holtz. Uh, I, I've seen great leaders. I've, I've had a chance to meet presidents of the United States. Um, and when you talk about leadership and what is, there's a term called a servant leader. Um, I've experienced uh, 
a lot of that, but really found that that leadership that I kind of admire and so fondly follow was the leadership that my mom showed. But, you know, being a, a, a poor kid in the south side of Chicago, um, you know, no food sometimes. Sometimes we had to dig through the garbage for food. Um, so when I talk about leadership and understand what a true leader is, I always think of my mom. So it's kind of funny. I mean, you know, I've had, been around some great captains in, in football and um, kind of leaders in the in various industries. And like I said before, great coaches. But the one person that taught me what true leadership meant was my mom. And she wasn't like trying to do it on her, like on purpose, believe me. I mean, you know, it's, it's the <laughs> sacrifices that she made. It's the examples that she showed me that made me understood what a leader was. But more importantly, I didn't know at the time, right? Some little kid growing up um, had a great time outside. Um, you know, we talked about, uh, I never got into football until I was in high school. So as a kid, you know, we didn't have little league teams. So we would play touch on the sidewalk and tackle on the grass. And we used to throw bricks at police car windows. I mean, you know, we, we had the kind of the crazy childhood, but I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. However, I didn't realize what type of adversity we were living in until I left. And so a lot of my upbringing really um, formed and shaped me into the man and the, the, the leader I've become. Would you say that your mom, who, who reached a level of fame, that there are actually pictures of Zora Zorich signing autographs at Notre Dame Stadium. <laughs> I'll Which, tell you, it, that's an awesome story, man. It's so cool. So tell it, tell it. She, um, so my junior year, I had an opportunity to be in Sports Illustrated. So they contacted me and said, "Hey, we want to do a story on you? You know, we want to talk to your mom about the childhood growing up and stuff like that. You know, is this something you guys want to do?" And we, we lived in kind of a very meager situation. I mean, we had mice and roaches and everything like that. So my mom never let Lou Holtz come to our house. And so when you're being recruited, part of the process, like to seal the deal, the head coach goes to the kid's house and talks to the parents. And in, in Lou Holtz's time, he, he would do a magic trick and all the kids would freak out and the parents were like, oh my God, he's a great guy, go to that school. But when he offered to come to my, our home, our apartment, my mom said no. And he was like, well, Mrs. Zorich, you know, I, I've never been turned on before. I mean, I'm, I'm offering to come to your home. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm the coach of Notre Dame. I'm Luke Holtz, you know, I'd like to come over. And my mom was like, no, that's fine. And so it wasn't until later that she told me that she was afraid that like a mouse was going to run across his feet or like roaches were going to um, come from behind one of the paintings on the wall or something. So I understood that. Um, so I had to like highly convince her to allow Sports Illustrated to come in our apartment and take a picture. And even at that, she, I think she let him in for like a half an hour or something like that. She's like, get your pictures and get out. 
<laughs> but it's so funny because um, after that photo was taken, so there's a picture of my mom and I sitting on the couch um, and we're kind of looking at each other and laughing. And I forgot what week that was, but it came out during the season. So the next home game, I come out of the locker room and normally, you know, my mom is the first person I see. I go over and give her a hug and I start signing autographs. So I go out there, I look out there, I don't see her. I'm like, well, I talked, for, I talked a couple hours before the game. I know she's here. So I'm like looking around, I don't see her. And then all of a sudden I see her and she's signing something. I'm like, what is she doing? And then I see a line. There's like a line of like 40 people waiting to get my mom's autograph. And that was absolutely hilarious. It freaked me out. It was so funny. And it's kind of interesting. There's a, um, um, and unfortunately, my mom passed away um, after my last college game. And somebody sent me, and I forgot the person's name, but they, they sent me the actual photo that my mom signed for him. So it was really kind of a, a full circle type thing where, you know, he was like, Chris, you know, this mean it means a lot to me, but I know this is going to be, it's going to mean more to you than it would to me. And I want you to have it. And I was, of course, I was born, I was kind of blown away. So it's, 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 it's kind of an interesting, actually funny story. So. Well, when you mention her as a, as a, as a leader, and I'm sure it manifests itself in various ways, but off the top of my head, I can think of, work ethic, perseverance, hunger, both literal and figurative. Yeah, really. How was she so instrumental? Like examples, like, you know, Chris, this is, it's bad now, but it's going to get better for us. You know, that sort of thing. Hard work will get you out of this place. Those sorts of discussions that, quite frankly, if you read about urban life, those are pretty common where the parents or the mom or the dad says, look, work hard and you can achieve anything you want and get the hell out of here. Sure. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I've, I've read that and heard that a thousand times, but my mom was never like that. Um, you, you know, she didn't sit me down and give me, you know, one, two, three, four, five life lessons. Um, I kind of watched and learned from her example. Um, one of the things that she did say, and it wasn't like a, a, a saying for her or how to succeed. It was just like, be kind to others. And I saw that in the beginning of the month, we would receive our, our public aid check that she got from the government. And if there were, if there was candy on sale, she'd buy a whole bunch. And we, we lived in an apartment complex that held maybe about, I'd say 40 apartment units. And she would come back from the store on her bike and before we would take the groceries upstairs, she passed candy out to all the kids. And, you know, I thought it was cool. It was like, hey, you know, my mom's a candy lady. But again, you don't know what's going on. So as I got older, I realized that, you know, that was money she could have saved for us. Right. But she felt that, you know, hey, she had, you know, a couple of extra dollars in the beginning of the month. Why not make these kids happy that, lived in our apartment complex. And, you know, if it wasn't 
candy it was fruit or whatever it was but she would always buy like a little something extra for 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 the kids in our our area or our, our complex and toward the end of the month when we didn't have money for the food or we didn't have food then you know she would find another way to get it and when i tell the story that we used to go through garbage for food, I, I, I want to kind of explain that image. It's not that we would walk down the street and go through the garbage. There, were, there was a supermarket um, about four, four or five blocks from our house. And at that time, they would just dump the expired food into the dumpsters. And so when I was a little kid, my mom would pick me up and put me in the dumpster and I'd like go through it and find food that wasn't rotten anymore or that would that would expire maybe a day or two ago and it was interesting i was telling the story to um this guy who was writing a book on leadership and success and he was so enamored with it but the story i told him because i joked around and said that um i didn't know apples were round until i got older because to me, apples were always square because we would take the apples and when my mom would take them home, she would cut off the rotten parts and she would give it to me. And you can imagine, so I'm looking at an apple with all these sharp edges. I'm like, okay, apples are square. So, and, and he actually used that phrase for the title of his book and talked about kind of a new spin on leadership. So that image, although... Um, it's really uh, disheartening was really a powerful moment for me because I saw the sacrifices that she was willing to go through in order for me to get nourished, right? To have food, some, a basic item. Yet you, you, you juxtapose that with her spending money that was already accounted for in the beginning of the month for people that she, you know, that, that weren't her family. So the level of leaders, again, it wasn't A, B, do this, do that, do this. It, it literally, I saw what, and, and I didn't know what a leader was until I get to college, right? I mean, you're a captain of high school, but, you know, I mean, sure. the guy who scores the most touchdowns or, or plays the best while he's the captain of high school, right? So it wasn't until Lou Holt started talking about what leadership was. So I started to learn, started to read books. And I was like, are you kidding me? I, I, I spent 21 years with this phenomenal leader that like literally no one knew about. So I, I thought that was kind of funny. Well, did, when I was in the army, my roommates were all, uh, I think came from adverse circumstances. And it's funny, that's not true. Uh, two of them did, who was a huge hurricane fan. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hear much of him from him. <laughs> uh, the other one came from the South side of Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and the third one uh, did not co grow up in adverse circumstances. He wasn't rich, but his father was career military. Okay. And so all of us, all of us joined the military because we needed to do something with our lives, prepare ourselves for college, get off the block, you know, uh, get a mentorship that you couldn't get at home. Sure. That was our escape. At what point was, and I'm going to assume that it is, at what point was the football field your place to escape. And I should add, a few minutes ago, you talked about being nice. 
and everyone listening to this podcast who has watched you played is still laughing at the fact <laughs> that you said, be nice. So go ahead. F forgive me, Chris. Talk about the football field as perhaps your escape. No, Rob, I mean, it's, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, so like, so there's a quote that one of the publications when I was being recruited talked to my high school coach and he put a quote and he said this quote and my mom hated it. And, and he basically said that Chris plays because of his environment and circumstances, he plays with this hate, this hunger of wanting to succeed and is willing to do anything he can or to be successful. And he's one of the meanest players that I've ever coached. So of course, you know, your mom reads that and she's not happy, right? I'm like, are you kidding me? And it didn't help that later in college, Sports Illustrated um, at one point called me one of the meanest players in college football. And my mom reads that and she's like, she's like, what are they talking about? I'm like, mom, I have no idea. <laughs> so, but apparently my high school coach who deemed himself apparently a, a psychologist as well, and, and, and it obviously has some, some, some truth to what he said was, when I got on the field, I had so much to prove. And I, I had this motor that never stopped and was willing to do whatever I needed to do in order to win. Now, I didn't know. Now, winning for me wasn't winning a game. It was just being successful. And, you, you know, it, it's weird. I, I didn't learn about what the importance of winning was and literally what losing was until I got to college. My high school team wasn't that successful. So, I mean, I literally played the sport because my friends were playing it. Um, but what, what excited you about it? Was it the weight room? Was it the hitting? Was it the camaraderie? All the above? Uh, it literally was all the – it was – there were certain aspects of it that, that everything that you said, but more so the camaraderie. Because I was an only child, uh, didn't have a male role model in the home. I lived in a rough neighborhood. Um, you know, I'd have to kind of think of different ways to, to go to school there and back every day because there were a lot of gangs and stuff. So I, I literally joined the, fo the football team because of the friendships. When my first year um, as a freshman, the same coach that said I was a mean son of a bitch um, saw me in the hallway and he was like, and I was about the same height, 6'1", that was like 240 pounds and was all baby fat, right? I mean, you're a freshman, you know? <laughs> so my high school coach was like, hey, who are you? And I'm like, well, my name's Chris, I'm a freshman. He's like, here, it's, it's CBS? I was like, yeah. He was like, no, you're not. I'm like, yeah, I am. He's like, I've never seen you before. And I'm like, hi. He's like, well, you know, I'm the football coach. Can you come down to my office? So make a long story short, he gave me a permission slip to have my parents sign. And so, so allowed me to play football. I went home. My mom said, no, um, I don't want you to get hurt. Now, mind you, I was almost like the biggest kid in school, but she was like, absolutely not. So <laughs> my first year, I didn't even play. 
And I went back the next day and, my, and the coach was like, hey, where's my permission slip? And I was like, well, my mom wouldn't let me sign it. And he got pissed. He was like, why? And I was like, well, she, she said she didn't want her little baby getting hurt. So he just went nuts. He was like, there's no way. He called my mom, went to the house, nothing. I went to the apartment, nothing. So every time he, see, he, he would see me in school, he'd just like frown. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, there's, why is the biggest kid in the school not playing football? But I hung out with a lot of guys in the team. And that's when this camaraderie started to build. And my sophomore year, um, I went to his office. I'm sorry, this is the, the start of my sophomore year. I went to his office and asked him for, permission, for a permission slip. And he laughed at me and threw one at me. And I went home and begged her. She said, absolutely not. And so I'm away to school the next day. I signed it. And so I started to play football. And the coach was just overjoyed. Um, I didn't tell him that I forged my mom's signature, but he was excited. <laughs> and it wasn't until I brought, like, our, our facilities were horrible. So I'm not, my, my uniform, I mean, I, I would take it to somebody else's house to get washed. And, and for some reason, I forgot, but I brought home, like, shoulder pads to clean or something like that. And my mom saw him and she's like, you've been lying to me. So we went through this long discussion and we were both crying and it was just a really, really emotional time. But I told her that, you know, this is the first time in my life that I've been involved with, with positive males. It's the first time I had a chance to learn how to set goals. It's yeah. the first, I mean, there are a lot of firsts that although she was working her butt off, she couldn't provide. And she allowed me to play. Now, she never went to any games except for the last game my senior year. I had already had a, scholar, a football scholarship. And she watched the game through her, her hand, her fingers, because she had her hands over her eyes. Because she swore that I was going to get hurt. And then after the game, she's like, wow, you're pretty good. And I'm like, mom, like, <laughs> I have a scholarship to Notre Dame. Like, yeah. She's like, Oh my God, I didn't realize you're that good. And I'm like, mom, like, would you really? <laughs> so, but but it's, it's, it's interesting because it, it's all that, I want to say hatred just because my mom hates that phrase, but, you know, it was having a chance to kind of work out the aggression of being um, in that environment, being picked on because I was biracial. My mom was white, my father was black. I lived in a black neighborhood. Um, needless to say, I used to get harassed. My mom used to get mugged a lot. I used to get beat up a lot. So it was just a really kind of tough circumstance. And on the field, none of that mattered. On the field, the bullies that were kicking my butt, going walking to and from high school, those are the guys that were wearing the, 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 the opponent's uniform. So I was able to kind of take it out on them. You're of Croatian descent. Were, yeah. do, were you raised grew up catholic um i was not um my mom was her parents were from split which is a beautiful area in croatia and unfortunately i've never been but all my friends who have they just love it they're like christian you have to go but um so i i speak like five words of croatian and three of them are swear words um <laughs> so i don't know but it was interesting because, <clears throat> I mean, I have photos of, of me as a little kid, like my mom teaching me how to throw a baseball. 
and um, kind of jumping rope and running. And, and so like she was this woman who kind of taught me all the things that uh, a father would have taught his son, but that person was not in the house. So everything I know, I kind of learned from her. You mentioned a few minutes ago the recruiting process um, when we had Notre Dame great Reggie Brooks on. Uh, he talked about that a little bit. His his older brother was already at Notre Dame, so he had kind of seen it uh, as it, it seemed like it was familiar to him in some ways. But for you, was Notre Dame always your first, first choice? In other words, were you like, oh, my God, I hope Notre Dame offers a scholarship? Or were there other schools that either recruited you harder or perhaps wish they had recruited you harder? So I have all these hilarious first stories, right? So the first recruiting letter I get was from Indiana State. And they're like, you know, hey, we'd like for you to come down. We'd like to offer you a scholarship. So this is after my junior year. So I guess I had a pretty good junior year. So they offered me a scholarship and said, you know, hey, you know, we, we'd love to have you. So I literally, I opened up the letter, called the school, and was like, all right, I'm there. Let's go. And the coach is like, uh, 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 pardon me, huh? And I'm like, well, yeah, you're offering me a scholarship. I'm ready to go. And the guy was like, um, uh, Chris, that, that letter kind of went out to a lot of people. I'm like, all right, well, I'm the first one to respond, right? He's like, well, yeah, you are the first one to respond. <laughs> But, and then he was like, look, honestly, Chris, that was just kind of a recruiting, you're going to have some better opportunities, but thank you. Cause I'm always going to tell the story that you actually said yes to us. <laughs> so I say that to say that, I mean, obviously my mom, we never went through this before um, through the recruiting process. Um, my high school really didn't have a lot of um, big schools recruiting from there. So when the coach at Notre Dame came and said, hey, how would you like to attend the University of Notre Dame? And this is the honest to God truth. I said, well, I would love to, but my mom doesn't like to fly. Now, before I tell you the really funny part, my high school is 91 miles away from the Notre Dame campus. My, my apartment was 89 miles away from Notre Dame's campus. And I'd never been to South Bend, never heard of it. And so he was like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, there's no way my mom would fly to France to see me play. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris. No, it, believe me. Hey, man, I tell that story, people roll. And he's like, what do you mean France? And I was like, well, you guys got the hunchback guy in the church, right? And I know he looked at me like, oh, what's this dude's SAT score? Oh, my God. I don't know if this is. I don't think we, we might need to reevaluate this guy because not only doesn't he know, not only does he know about Notre Dame, he doesn't even know where the hell the place is. Now that and seems by, like by the, the way, of, it's 90 miles away. That seems like the kind of story that Lou Holtz would hang on to. Oh, believe me, he did. And it, I mean, it's one of the stories that I heard often. I heard often. But, and again, the idea was – if you graduated from high school in my neighborhood, it was a big deal. Um, you know, a lot of guys, as you mentioned before, either looked to the service or just went to work at like um, the local auto mechanic or they were um, bagging groceries at the local store, I mentioned. 
So there weren't a lot of motivated people in my neighborhood. There were wonderful people, phenomenal, hardworking, great people, but the, the options weren't there. Was there another school that recruited you just as hard or was the decision to attend Notre Dame in any way a tough one? So as I started to evaluate and I knew how close Notre Dame was, um, my final five visits were University of Miami, who had just won a national championship, mm-hmm. um, Michigan, Northwestern, Illinois, and then Notre Dame. And I'm glad I didn't go to Miami because there was a guy by the name of Russell Maryland who played yeah. um, at a local high school in Chicago, and he was a phenomenal player for Miami and wound up being like the first round or the first pick or something like that in the draft. Yeah, yeah number 67, first overall, yeah. first overall yeah. Cowboys after Jimmy Johnson had left to go there. Bingo. So I would have never played. So I'm, thank God I didn't go to Miami. <laughs> I think you'd have gotten on <laughs> You might have gotten on the field for a minute or two, but that yeah, must have been, I don't know about that. Um, we, we'll talk about the, the the game against Miami in 1988 in a second. But but was it weird to see some of the guys who I'm sure you probably met on recruiting trips or or Jimmy Johnson on the sideline for that? I'm like, God, I could be over there instead of here. Well, you know, it was interesting. It wasn't so much um, I could be over there. Was that what Lou Holtz did? He combined. Um, guys from the Faust era who had lost terribly to Miami. And literally, as I found, as I found out from interviewing guys in my podcast, like at, at one point, Faust lost the team and guys were just kind of like hanging out just to hang out. They weren't listening. I mean, it was, it was, it was a really bad situation. And so Holt found a way to combine those guys with young guys who didn't understand this, the idea of Notre Dame was supposed to do things certain ways, right? So a big comparison somebody told me a long time ago was you guys wear t-shirts and jeans when the older guys wore khakis and polo shirts. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I never thought about that, but it was true. Like, I mean, we're just like a bunch of kids that didn't know how good we were, but wouldn't back down from a challenge. And not saying the, the older guys weren't, but something happened there where, you know, they, I don't want to say that they didn't mind losing bad to play to the teams, but the idea of losing was never in our vocabulary. And Holtz was able to kind of bring those kids. So when you look at that 88 team that won the national championship, I mean, we had like 11 to 12 starters that were sophomores. We even had a freshman playing. So Coach Holtz didn't care about what year you were. He just wanted you to succeed. And it, what's funny about the Miami game is that there were a lot of guys. So I knew a couple of the guys, but someone like Pat Terrell actually went to school yeah. with half the guys that were on the team. And so it was never like, hey, those guys are really good. It was always like, you know, hey, those guys are our peers. Like we're, we're as good, if not better than they are anyway. And so I think that helped a lot because literally it was a transition. Like the last game Miami played Notre Dame, they beat them like 58 to seven or nothing or something like that. So then all of a sudden they, the next time you play them, 
Notre Dame wins. Like, like what happens in the three years, in that three-year span? What was it about Coach Lou Holtz that sealed the deal for you? Or was it more about the institution? So as the assistant coach dropped off of the media guide and was like, eh, I don't know about this guy, I devoured it. You know, I read every single page. Um, he also dropped off uh, an admissions uh, booklet. I devoured that as well and was just enthralled, like, oh, my God, there's so much history here. And then I started feeling bad, like, wow, I really embarrassed myself because <laughs> this is a great school. And, oh, by the way, they also play football there. And, oh, by the way, you rock me. And this is unbelievable. So the fact that I was just so naive and, and, and so young and didn't know anything about Notre Dame was, I mean, I, I, I saw it as this huge um, – Instead of looking at it as an obstacle, it was a benefit, right? Because I was so new to it. And as I did research at other schools, the one thing that popped out was that for the last like 10 years, Notre Dame's graduation rate was 98.98 for their athletes. And I was being recruited by Northwestern. And although it's a great institution, it was hovering like around 90, 95, which is great. Believe me. Sure. Yes, there were other schools on that list that they, they weren't graduating that. <laughs> so basically, I thought that if I went here, I was going to be guaranteed to graduate. And then my biggest thing was, I'm going to graduate, get my get a good job, and get my mom out of the neighborhood. That was literally what my my motivation was. So. It could have been Faust could have been there, and I, I would have I would have attended Notre Dame because of the institution, because of the graduation rate, because of the type of place I learned that it was. So, although I love Lou Holtz, for me it was about the institution and graduating from Notre Dame. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by. Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Notre Dame All-American Chris Zorich. Your freshman year, Notre Dame continues its ascent under Lou Holtz, makes it to the Cotton Bowl, lose to – who did lose to? Is it Texas A&M? No. Yes, it was. Texas A&M. Uh, if you've watched – if people listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast have not watched the 30 for 30, Catholics versus convicts, and you are a Notre Dame football fan, then you are missing out. <laughs> it's a terrific, terrific. We'd love to have the uh, the person who put it together, the host, on the podcast. But Lou Holtz says after actually, I, I, I might be able to help you out because actually uh, I, I interviewed um, the guy who wrote the book that led to the movie or led to the documentary. Oh, so terrific! If I can, I would love to hook you up because he's a great guy. I appreciate that very, very much. Uh, Lou Holtz says after the eighty-seven season and the 
loss in the Cotton Bowl, only one player on the Notre Dame team was crying, and that person didn't even play. And that person is Chris Zorch. Is that a true story? Uh, yes. However, um, I didn't – I was not aware that that was in one of his books. So he, he, he put that – he actually put that in one of the books he talked about winning a national championship and talked about success and leadership and all that stuff. So I literally about 10, 15 years later after I graduate. I'm at an appearance, some guy comes up to me and goes, hey, I didn't know you cried after the, the Cotton Bowl. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then he pulled out this book that he wanted me to sign. He's like, look. And I read and I was like, oh my God. And it's actually a very flattering thing, but 15 years removed, I kind of forgot about it <laughs> and didn't realize I'm like sobbing like a little baby. But... Um, what happened was, so I was on what is called the, the prep team, the, the scout team. So for those of you who might not know what that is, I would perform or I would try to uh, emulate the players on the opposing team for our, our starting offense. And basically people would do that don't really play their first their, their first and second year at school. So I was on that team and my job I felt was to get the starting center and the starting guards to um, perform well during the game. And so that week we had a rough week of practice and we got in a couple fights. I mean, I've been doing that all year. And so when we lost, I felt as though I let my team down. Now, I'm not on the starting unit. Um, I'm not contributing at all. I didn't play at all my freshman year. But for me, my game days were practice. So I'd go hard in practice. So I felt that I was making my, my teammates better that way. But since we got the crap beat out of us, I felt as though I, left, I let my team down. So I was unhappy about that. And I tried so hard in order to do that. But it didn't happen. And so those were tears of anger. Those were tears of sadness. Those were tears of, again, I felt as though I, I let my teammates down. Now, what I didn't know was Coach Stoltz was looking at that, and he, he brought that back and told his other coaches, he's like, look, this dude didn't even play. He has this much passion. We have to find a way to get him on this team. We have to find a way to get him on the field. And, oh, by the way, we have to try to find some guys who are like him that have this type of passion about Notre Dame. I mean, here's a kid who didn't play at all, and he was weeping like a baby. And so then I was like, wow, now I understand what he meant and what, the, what he was trying to do. And so, but I would have to say, I mean, when I got back, like, he treated me like crap. I mean, it wasn't like I was, I was like, special. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't like, hey, everybody follow Chris. I mean, he threw him out of practice. I mean, he, he, he treated me like, me like everybody else. But when I, when I saw that 15 years later, I was like, oh, my God. Like, that was such an honor that he said those things and said that we need to build – we need to find people like Chris because he cares so much about the game. It seems like if you read about that team or watch the documentary I mentioned, that Holtz was mean to everyone except Tony Rice. <laughs> 
That's very true. Um, <laughs> however, Tony, I know Tony very well, and he's, I just spoke to him a couple days ago, but he's very fragile sometimes. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> he's a phenomenal competitor. And, you know, he was kind of thrown into a situation where, I mean, it was a different style of quarterbacking for Notre Dame. And he literally, I think the first time he got into a game, he was so nervous he lined up against or underneath the guard instead of the center. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, but he's the nicest guy in the world. And, and when we talk, he tells stories about how um, he, he, he may had great relationships with people in the dorm that weren't even athletes. Um, I mean, it was just, it was just a great experience for him. And so it was interesting, but he kind of, he, he messed with Rick or with uh, Tony in other ways. So for the whole, for his first year, so when Lou Holtz was at Minnesota, he had a quarterback, and his name was Ricky Foggy. Yeah. And so for a year with Tony on Notre Dame's team, when Holtz Holt was with Notre Dame, he called Tony Rice Ricky Foggy. And so the idea that, I mean, and again, I mean, he knew, obviously knew who he was, but he felt that that was a way, that was a way that he, he could motivate him. So he would yell at me and pull my face mask and, you know, do all this crazy stuff to me and other players. Yet for Tony, he would never do that. He would actually talk to him, things like that. So he knew what buttons to push with, with each individual player. Holtz came into a situation where, as you mentioned before, Notre Dame football was quite frankly fractured both inside and outside. And it was a situation that Notre Dame football wasn't used to, especially in the fact that they had won two national championships in the 1970s. And within just a few years, Lou Holtz has Notre Dame competing and eventually winning a national championship. Quite frankly, the question is, what is it about him? What is it about his style, his way of doing things and motivating and the X's and O's that made Coach Holtz so incredibly successful? Well, I look at coaching in a different perspective. So obviously, I mean, there's only, and, and obviously this changes every year, but I mean, there's only a few ways to coach a game, right? I mean, you have the rules, you have to coach within those rules. So at the end of the day, the one constant you're going to have with coaches is that they know the game. So then the question is, hey, do I know the game better than you know the game? Which is debatable. But what they don't talk about is how do you motivate those players in order to play that game, right? So, I mean, everybody has to wear the same equipment. Everybody has to put their, their pants on the exact same way. But how does one get motivated to go out there and play? And that's where Coach Holtz was very different. Um, you know, he, he cared about his players. Um, you know, he would bring in uh, like a national speaker every away game. So I remember when we were, when we were playing a bowl game and he bought the, the CEO of Federal Express to talk to us. And Fred Smith? Um, uh, whoever it was in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was another time where he bought, he, he, he brought in uh, a fighter pilot from the Air Force that had all these kills. And when we would listen to them, you know, one's talking about business, one's talking about the, the armed forces. And 
they would try to relate it to us in athletics or sports. And it was always there. Coach Holtz talked about, you know, what are you going to do after Notre Dame? You know, what type of man are you going to be? Um, he has a motto that he goes by and has, it's basically trust, love, commitment. And he talked about loving each other, um, which is kind of weird talking about a coach and you want your players to love each other. But he had this different philosophy where he went beyond the X's and O's. And I think when you have someone like that who can motivate you beyond the X's and O's, then you, you want to sacrifice and you, you want to play for that person. And so that's when, when I first met him. I mean, he didn't even like recruit me. So to speak, like the first time I met him, met him, um, was like at an event when I went down on my recruiting business. Now that, that's, that's unheard of. Normally the coaches down your house, they meet, they meet the mailman, they meet everybody, right? Cause they're, they're trying to convince you to go to their school. So <clears throat> when I talked to him, he got me motivated about being a better person, about being a better man, um, about doing well in the classroom. And so, you know, when I was that age, uh, and even to this day, I mean, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for him or a wall that I wouldn't try to run through for him because of the way he treated his players. 1988, and we actually had, uh, uh, I should say very quickly, Eddie White, who does uh, works for the Indiana Pacers now, but was a PR person under Roger Baldessari. Oh, at, nice. Uh, and uh, he talks, Eddie White, who does a mean Lou Holtz impression. He talked a lot about Notre Dame, and we talked about that 88 team. He was gone by then. 1988, Notre Dame starts the season ranked. Even though they had lost the bowl game, still had expectations for a very strong year. But at what point in that 1988 season, which ended in a national championship win in the Fiesta Bowl against West Virginia, at what point in that season did you think, okay, this, this feels different than last year? And we have a chance to make our mark in a way that Notre Dame hadn't done for several years. Well, the one thing that Holtz was great about was he was a mastermind in making sure you're motivated for that game you're playing that week and not anyone else. So as we're winning, you know, our, we're, we're getting higher and higher in the rankings and Coach Holtz was like, yeah, but you're playing Rice who, by the way, never they're, – they're on their longest winning streak for like 30 years or something like that. <laughs> and he was like, you know, righteous quarterback can do this, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, we went out thinking that there's a possibility we could lose the rights. Now, a coach who's able to get you motivated, but more importantly, concentrating on every aspect of that week for that game, and this is, I think, was a, a downfall – for him and a lot of our teammates were that we were so concentrating on winning week to week that we didn't enjoy kind of the, uh, the fruit of our labor, I guess, right. because we were so, so concentrated on making sure we performed against the opponent that week that yes, 
I mean, like if you if you would ask me what our ranking was that year, I had no idea. Even if you would have asked me that that year, because yeah, hey, I knew we were ranked fourth or seventh or eighth, but we were playing Navy and we've never lost to Navy, but they have this, they have that, they have this. And so we didn't have a chance to kind of smell the roses as we were going down this national championship. Now I say that, but I wouldn't have had it any other way because I realized how hard it is to win a national championship. And you have to be that laser focused because one hiccup or one bounce ball or one um, onside kick, uh, one, one fumble recovery, I mean, anything could happen where you can lose that opportunity and so we were that laser focused that, um, again, we didn't have a chance to enjoy it at the time, but I'm glad we did. Well, for your, to your point, and I think I've got the score right. You beat Michigan 1917, <laughs> your sophomore year, 1988. So the Michigan kicker, I can't remember if it was Gillette. I'm going to think it's Gillette. I could be wrong. He lines up to kick a field goal, has a chance to win the game for Michigan in the fourth quarter. You've played your tail off. I'm sure you're sore. It's a hard-fought game like all those Michigan games were. You're standing on the sidelines. What are you thinking? Oh, God, please miss. Please make him miss. We can't oh, possibly lose this game. Of course. But also, I mean, and, and not taking anything away from a kicker, but if – I mean, you can't go into a game relying on someone make a, making a field goal to win the game. Okay, I mean, that's just bottom line, right? So people kind of give people – the kickers a hard time when they miss the field goal. Like, oh, wow, you know, you had one job. But, yeah, but you had, about, <laughs> you know, 80 plays that you didn't do too well on or you wouldn't be in that circumstance, right? So, I mean, and I, I respect the game that much that if – our, if we're in a situation where they were going to win the game, then they would have, they should have. I mean, they were the better team that day. Now, if we would have played them the following day, the following week, maybe we would have, we would have won. So that's kind of my attitude about it is that if the game comes down to a field goal, like I'm not that happy about it, but he missed it. And that was kind of our opportunity to kind of go and defeat it. <laughs> October 15th, 1988, uh, it's probably still the most famous game in Notre Dame Stadium history. Um, maybe the Florida State game a few years later would be in the same conversation. Uh, Notre Dame was robbed of a national championship that year. But in 1988, they went undefeated. October 15th is when they played the Miami Hurricanes, defending national champion, number one team in the country, um, if you're old enough to remember college football back then, uh, you will remember what an absolute juggernaut Miami Hurricanes were under coach Jimmy Johnson. They come into Notre Dame Stadium. Notre Dame wins 31-30 on a terrific play by Pat Terrell, who made two terrific plays that day, yes, for sure. Did. The documentary about that game focuses a lot on how you, Chris Zorich, made the Miami Hurricanes realize this is a different Notre Dame team, a different Notre Dame defense. 
what are your memories of that game? And quite frankly, do you believe that your presence made a difference on that defense? Well, I don't think it was me in particular. I think we had, but I mean, we had 11 guys who were the best 11 on that team that they were playing on defense at the time. Um, I mean, it wasn't necessarily me. It was an attitude that we had. Uh, kind of what we what I alluded to before is that you know we didn't we we weren't expecting to lose. You know, we didn't have that history of being beat by Miami 58 to nothing. And so the idea that we were playing our friends, playing that appeared guys that we went on recruiting trips with, you know, this is this is a different other name. You know, we're wearing t-shirts and jeans. We're not wearing khakis, pants, or polo. But it started um, with them kind of um, getting too close to us in the tunnel before the game. So we'd be getting this huge fight before the game. And a lot of – so basically it's – well, when you're doing a, a, a pregame, you have a set schedule on what you're going to do. So the receivers go out there and do stuff. The linebackers will blah, blah. Well, at the end, for Coach Holtz, we would line up and we would um, do a, a punt and make sure everybody was lined up perfectly everything. Well, as we were completing that, they were, they, they were going to go into the locker room. So they actually ran through our little our, – what we had, our little practice we had. And we weren't going to take any of that, so we started getting the shoving match and the police had to pull people off. And I think that was kind of a surprising different turn than they had ever seen Notre Dame because they were used to beating the crap out of them 58 to nothing or 58 to seven or whatever the score was. But like you would punch them and, people, and they would back down. But you would punch us and we would punch back even harder, which was different, right? So right. they weren't used to that. And so when we got into the locker room, um, it, it kind of Coach Holtz talks about this. He was trying to calm everybody down and say, you know, hey, we don't fight. And we had just got, we had actually gotten a fight in the first game against Michigan. So we unfortunately had this reputation of not being like. You, be, nice. be, being the actual fighting Irish. Right, literally. <laughs> so, but again, it was a swagger that we had his attitude. And so he like freaked out. He's like, you know, we can't do this. It's not who we are. You know, if anybody gets into another fight, you know, I'm going to kick you off the team. Um, he was like, but, you know, I'll let you know that, you know, we will challenge Miami any way we can and play within the rules. So he went on and on about playing everybody. And then at the end, he said, you saved Jimmy Johnson's ass for me. Now, Coach Holtz didn't swear. And he weighs like a buck of five soaking wet. He's like four foot tall or whatever. And Jimmy Johnson actually played football at Oklahoma State. And he was yeah. a good player. And so we had this image of like, and Holtz never source. We're like, so we were pumped up. We were fired up. We leave the locker room. I mean, I don't even think, I, I'm sure a couple of guys forgot their helmets because we were just so excited and so fired up. And we went out there and played a game that literally will probably go down in the history of Notre Dame as just being this amazing upset of kind of what Notre Dame was. And, and I think that game 
you kind of mentioned before, you know, you're looking at, you know, you're going up the rankings, you know, when did you know you, you're going to, you know, you, you might have a chance at the title. After that game, we knew we were a different team as a whole because of the reputation that Miami had. And, you know, we were out to prove ourselves. And that, that game gave us enough confidence to go into the next game and do well. And then by the time we were playing West Virginia and Major Harris in the actual um, Fiesta Bowl for the national championship, I mean, we knew we were going to beat the crap out of them. And we knew that, I mean, it wasn't even going to be tied. I mean, it wasn't even going to be a game because we had gone through so much. And there were so many ups and downs that season that we weren't going to be denied. And I think going into that game, I mean, Major Harris had like phenomenal stats. Like I think right. he had like 2,000 yards rushing and passing. I mean, it was – and I mean, going into it, we knew he was a threat, but we knew we had to stop him. And unfortunately, he got injured um, toward, I think, maybe the beginning of the second half or something like that, or the, the, the second quarter. But the idea that, you know, we were playing one of the best teams in the country for the national championship was apparent, but we, had, we felt we played the national championship game against Miami, you know, a couple months before. It was score was 31-30, Notre Dame – has to now stop Miami on a two-point conversion. You are obviously rushing the quarterback. So I'm guessing you don't see, and please correct me, you don't see Pat Terrell's deflection of the two-point pass. Not at all. He was trying to catch it, but he couldn't pass it. <laughs> Poor Pat. He talks about his hands in the uh, documentary. So you're rushing the quarterback. You're doing your best. And actually, Abu Williams is the one who makes a terrific play rushing the quarterback, forces Walsh to throw off his back foot. But you're facing away from the end zone. So the only way you know whether Miami scores or doesn't score is the crowd. Yes. Talk, well, about, I mean, talk about the we, Notre Dame crowd that day and what was it like on that two-point conversion to hear the roar and you knew Miami didn't make it? Well, first of all, that day, the crowd there, and, and I would, and, and again, I understand, I mean, being a college administrator, I understand what it means to put an extra 30,000 people in your stands. I totally understand that. <laughs> but Notre Dame Stadium was so small when we had 59,000, and they would even put um, folding chairs, like on the end zone, like in the back, and so literally, like, people talk about playing uh, basketball in, in Duke, and I don't even know the name of the basketball stadium, but... Cameron. Yeah, people talk about playing games at Cameron when people are right on top of you. I mean, that's how we felt when we were playing Notre Dame. I mean, the fans were literally right on top. Like, you could turn around, and you could, like, see if somebody was wearing contacts. I mean, it was, the folks were that <laughs> close, right? So, the, so every time people made a play... For I mean, it was just, I mean, the excitement. I mean, like literally people talk about the the, the 12th man. I mean, we had, you know, 59,000 fans that were just on their minds. So every time we, we made a play, it, it, it erupted. So I'm glad that you mentioned 
George, who unfortunately is no longer with us, he just passed away recently. Right. But if not for a fellow D lineman as George Boo Williams, as I'm about to mention, um, you know, Pat doesn't deflect that pass because if you go back and take a look at it, uh, Pat Walsh, or excuse me, um, Steve Walsh, the quarterback, was rolling out. And in order to avoid George and his hands in the air, he kind of had to throw it on like a little angle. And so that angle may have allowed Pat to kind of, and, and again, it's all kind of, it, it all happened for a reason, right? So, you know, George gets out there, puts his hand up, uh, Steve throws it on an angle, and Pat has enough in order to catch it, but he can't. So the best thing he did was just knock it down. And for me, it was one of those situations where when the ball left his hands, so I kind of followed it. And it was one of those situations that were in slow motion, right? If you ever been in a car accident, it's like, oh my God, it's a slow motion. But like I could see the ball leaving Steve's hand and going, oh my God, is this it? And literally, it's like taking forever to get to the end zone, and then eventually Pat knocks the ball away. But the, I mean, it was, it was that was probably, and I've had a chance to play professionally and everything, but by far the most exciting game I've ever been to, I, I've ever been involved in as a competitor. I mean, it was the the emotions were just amazing. To talk about how Notre Dame, how good Notre Dame football was that year. Notre Dame beat the number one team the Miami Hurricanes. They beat the number three team in the national championship, West Virginia Mountaineers. But they also beat the number two team in the country on the road. And that was USC. That game sometimes gets lost a little bit between the two, the national championship and the win over Miami. What are your memories of the game traveling to USC and beating them 27 to 10? Because that was a real statement game by the Irish. Well, Rob, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because a lot of people don't. And I really applaud you for, for doing that because, I mean, that, that game really was kind of that – I mean, if we lost the game, we weren't going to play for the national championship. And at the time, you know, USC was ranked number two. They had Rodney Pete, who was a uh, Heisman candidate, they had some great, great players and great tradition. And oh, by the way, they're playing in the Coliseum and it was sold out. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Like, like it was, it was just this great feeling, but it was interesting because, um, you know, we're all pumped up and there was a team meeting um, the, the day of the game. It was kind of in, in, an unexpected team meeting and we're all sitting there and coach Holtz announces that he sent two of our starting players home because they broke our curfew. And those two players were um, Tony Brooks and Ricky Waters who were both sophomores who were playing. And my, my heart sank. I was like, wow, okay, here's the game. Like this is like, we're going to lose. Like this is crazy. (laughs) And he said a couple of things and he said, seniors, this is your team. And he walked out. And I'm a sophomore and I'm like, what the hell is going on? The coach just left. And so the seniors started to stand up and started to say how they felt. And by the time we left that team meeting, we knew we were going to win. 
We didn't know how we were going to win, but we knew we were going to win. It was an attitude. And, you know, this was, I mean, I talked before about leadership and, and, and what that um, is involved in. And, you know, some of the seniors that, that spoke weren't starters. I mean, some of the seniors that spoke weren't great players. But they were players who had, had went through kind of all the adversity of right. the loss um, to great teams being defeated, how now being undefeated within a short period of time is such a great feeling. I mean, uh, so the excitement that we had, and again, I mean, you talk about an emotional, I mean, it was like a 45-minute meeting, and it, before the meeting started, I thought we were going to lose, and by the time I, I left, I don't think anybody was ever going to beat us again. <laughs> Notre Dame wins the national championship in 1988, and that victory over USC was the only one versus two meeting in the history of the greatest intersectional rivalry in college football. The first game of the next year, I think it was the first game, you go to Michigan. It's yeah. raining, driving raining. I was in the military. My roommate was from Michigan. Um, he didn't stay for the whole game for obvious reasons. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Kenny Terry, if you're listening, I'm talking about you, my friend. Wow. What was it like to be at Michigan Stadium and watch Rocket Ismail completely silence 110,000 Michigan fans, not once, but twice? So th there are things that you, uh, when you experience them, they're kind of surreal, out-of-body moments. And you don't ever have, you really don't have ever have that feeling when you're playing an, an opponent at their place. But so I had never been to a Michigan game before. Um, and as mentioned before, we played them at Michigan in 87, but I didn't travel with the team. So I'd never been there. And I walk in and it is the largest thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, I don't know who holds more of the Coliseum or Michigan. I think Michigan does. But it was the largest game I've ever seen in my life. And then, oh, by the way, you have 110,000-plus screaming fans that hate Notre Dame. So we thrived on being able to kind of shut a team down and quiet a crowd. But I was like, there's no way we're going to be able to to quiet to – shut down this crowd and quiet this crowd because there's so many. And I don't know what the game plan was for Bo Schimbleckler, but for him to have, you know, the, the pride, the ego to, to kick two punts to Rocket Ishmael is mind-blowing to me. And, and, and kudos to him to have the confidence in his – um, punt team that he thinks is going to stop Rocket. I mean, I, I probably would have done the same thing, but I'm like, literally, when that happened, Rocket became like a household name. Well, there were, if memory serves, nobody had ever returned a kickoff uh, back for a touchdown against a Michigan Wolverine team coached by Schembechler, who I think got there in the late 60s. Okay. So we're talking about the 1980 nine season wow he kicked it to him and he scored a, a touchdown 
and then he did it again and rocket scored another touchdown on a kickoff both of those touchdowns are on youtube you ought to watch them they're absolutely phenomenal you're right that's probably what made him a household name even though he certainly flashed in the 1988 season sure, sure. but on the team bus on the way back or in the locker room afterward are you just looking at this guy like this is a different Notre Dame team. This isn't – we had Tim Brown in 87, but this guy is a special talent. Well, no, because we had to, we had to go against him in practice. So we knew, right? So, so we, knew, we knew how fast he was. We knew all, all, all the, the – him being so special where if he had a crease – and it could be a small crease. If he had a crease, <laughs> he was gone. And, you know, it just made our defense better when we practiced against them. And sometimes, and I forgot who it was, but one of the teams we played had uh, a great option quarterback and a great um, running back. And so Holtz actually, for a couple periods, would bring down Tony to run the scout offense and have Rocket as the running back on the scout offense team. Now, we weren't allowed to hit him, but <laughs> trying to catch him, we, we could grab him, but trying to grab those guys just made us a, a better team. So to answer your question, we knew what he was capable of, but the fact that he was able to do it on such a large stage was just amazing. That's a terrific point. The nineteen eighty-eight-nine team, the nineteen eighty-nine team was excellent, but lost in the rematch against Miami in the Orange Bowl. Did the outcome of that game surprise you? Absolutely. Um, you know, we wanted to go in there and prove ourselves. We wanted to go in there and show that team that we had previously beat. <clears throat> that we, we could beat you anywhere. And later Holtz talked about this in one of his books, and he said it in I mean, numerous speeches, but the one thing he regretted was um, kind of what happened, what happened before the game. And I'll, I'll kind of set the stage a little bit. So, you know, we had just beat Miami the previous year. They were all fired up to play us. I don't know how many fans that were in the Orange Bowl, but that's where they played. And there were rabid, rabid um, Miami fans. And, you know, here we are, lonely Notre Dame. And, you know, this group of 100 guys, we, we are going to take on everybody in this freaking stadium because we just know we're going to beat the crap out of them. And Miami being Miami – had started a confrontation. And so we're, we're all out. We start swinging. You know, we start hitting. We start going at it. And when they broke us up, Holtz was livid. And he, 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 he made everybody go back in the locker room and really kind of deflated all this excitement and aggression and um, uh, exuberance we had to, to play. And he basically told us that if we got into a fight, he would kick us off the team. And guys like, you know, hey, this is not possible. This is, we're playing for a big game. And he was like, look, you know, there's no, this is not who Notre Dame is. 
we're, we're not going to sink to their level and literally just took all the air out of the whole team. And guys went out there who we just literally were fighting with them, throwing blows, throwing punches. And like we went out there timid. Uh, we were afraid. Um, now, this is, wasn't everybody, but the, it, it affected enough people that we wound up losing the game. And that was the hardest thing to see was, it, it, but it also helped me, uh, again, as a leader, because I had never seen what words could do, um, how mm -hmm. words can, can change emotion, like, within minutes. And I was, I was stunned that we wound up getting our butt kicked the way we did because you know we had we went on a, a 23 game winning streak which is one of the longest and where i think it's, i think it's actually longest for notre dame right and it's never been done before and literally we we were winning 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 and all of a sudden now within 15 minutes i mean holtz was able to take all the air out of that excitement and literally let us go out there and get our butt kicked. Notre Dame finished the season by defeating the number one team in the country. I believe they were the number one team in the country. Were they not? Yeah. Colorado yeah. in yeah. the Orange Bowl and send Tony Rice and that class away winners. In 1989, Chris Zorich was a consensus All-American and UPI Lineman of the Year. 1990, your senior year, you beat Michigan again. God love you. <laughs> you also play the third game in that uh, troika of rivalry games against the University of Miami, this time at Notre Dame. Was that game in any way anticlimactic, or was it still at the same fever pitch as the previous games? Uh, actually, it was – very much so anticlimactic because we were we we knew how good we were and we weren't going to deny we weren't going to allow anybody to deny us that and so you know it was almost like some of the luster had kind of been um um knocked off that game but it was great because like they kind of felt how we did in the past and so they kind of walked in there knowing how great we were and how great they were, and all of a sudden, it was just another game. And that, I think that was so interesting because for, for it to be such a heated rivalry for those two years, that third game was just another game. That game features another Rocket Ismail kickoff return for a touchdown. What a, what a weapon. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think the final score maybe is at 29-20. Yeah. And, and then the, the series was ended. Right. Were you in favor of it being ended, or did you think it was something that should have continued? Uh, actually, it should have continued, but um, my understanding was that a lot of the fans who went down to Notre Dame and some of the priests, some of the they spit on the priests when when we played them down in Miami, and a lot of our fans got harassed. And I know the university at the time said that we don't want to be a part of that, and it's frustrating because. I mean, 
having a chance to play Miami year in and year out allows you to kind of see where you register, see where you, see where you stand that year. And, and they were a very, very good team, and they had some great players. And so not having the chance to see them every year was something that really uh, I kind of feel feel bad for 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 the for the play for the teams that came after us because this was a true test of kind of where you stood in the college football kind of uh, ranking and being able to so this is beyond the fact that if you look at through at least through through my time let's so so let's say from um, 88 until 91, look at all the number one teams, we, number one ranked teams we played. Look at all the teams we were ranked, I think, out of, and it's some crazy stat where it's like out of the 31 games during that time that I played in, um, we were ranked number one, like maybe 24 of those games or something like that. I mean, it was, it was just crazy. And so that 89 team, you beat the big East champ, the, you beat these, all the, the big 10 champ, you beat the, the, the pac 10 champ, you beat all these championship teams and still, you know, still finished number two in the final rankings. But I remember Holtz going through, we beat the big eight champ and he's naming all these conference champions and Notre Dame had beaten them all and then had one lousy half at Miami. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because when you – which is one of the reasons why, and, and, and I'm going to be very egotistical here, but that's the reason why Notre Dame should stay independent because you have opportunities like that. I mean, you can't name a team that has done that. I mean, in one year. I mean, the, the time I played, we never lost to a Big Ten team. I mean, so, so, so there were some yeah. great stats there. And you'll, unfortunately, you won't see this again with kind of the, the conference realignment and everything. I mean, conferences uh, aligning themselves with both with uh, games and stuff like that. But, I mean, you aren't going to see that. And, and so I think that takes away of some of the excitement from college football, seeing teams from other conferences play each other before like a bowl game. I mean, obviously this year is kind of scratched just because of COVID, but the idea that, you know, one Sunday you can turn on a Notre Dame versus Michigan, but you can also turn on a Notre Dame versus Southern Cal and not have to wait until a bowl game for that to happen. You're standing on the sidelines and it's where you're at the game. I, I don't know that you played on the punt team your senior year. I'm guessing maybe I did you did not. You I did not. I wasn't standing on the sidelines. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> It's the Orange Bowl against Colorado, who, again, I think is ranked number one. Yep. And the score is 10 to 9. And the coach of Colorado decides uh, – Bill McCartney, I think is his name? Yep. Yep. Decides to kick – to punt – to punt the ball to Rocket Ismail, who runs it back for a touchdown, only to have the touchdown nullified by the single worst call in the history of college football. <laughs> What was your emotion as you watched Rocket run that kickback? It's a beautiful punt return. He gets hit, but he gets past it, and then he streaks to the end zone, and then you hear Bill Walsh, who's doing the game for NBC, say there's a flag. And What's the high and the low of that? Well, just kind of what you explained. I mean, 
having a chance to kind of see him do what he does in a high-pressured moment, right? I mean, how many people can do that? I mean, how many people can win a game on one play? And they actually have that ability, right? So you have quarterbacks who can do that, but you need a receiver, right? I mean, you, you need help with that. But you have Rocket, who obviously need help with blockers, but you have somebody who's willing to put the weight on the team and, and, and literally give it 100% and score. And so the euphoria, the, 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 the excitement that you have watching that is amazing. And then literally, literally moments later, not even seconds, moments later, you see a flag. And so that, that's, that's that emotional low. And that's not something you wish you want anybody to, to experience, right? Because you got this great euphoria of just saying, hey, we just won the game. This is the best thing ever. And then literally seeing there's a flag, there's a flag, and all the wind being knocked out of you. Did Holtz just freak out? I don't remember. I was I was freaking out myself, so I don't I don't remember <laughs> Holtz doing it. But I'm sure I'm sure he threw his hat down. I'm sure he was, you know, running on the field and everything. But I just remember just kind of my mouth was just open, like, you're kidding me. Like, you're absolutely kidding me. And, of course, you know, we, we didn't even – I don't even think they, they aired the replay in the stadium. But, you know, I mean, you, you can't see what exactly happens. And, unfortunately, I do have to say this, though. The guy who did – his name was Greg Davis. And, you know, some, when we get together, guys still give him shit. And he, kind of, he still kind of feels bad, which – it's kind of rough because you know this is 30 years later and I kind of I kind of feel bad for him. I believe it. Uh, as we wind down the Leaders and Legends podcast here in the last few minutes we have, we don't want to take up too much of Chris Zorich's time. He's been incredibly gracious and generous. Uh, there is a speaking of a high and a low uh, coda to that senior year. Um, you lost, I think, your last home game was it to Stanford? Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, to Stanford, right. and then you lose the bowl game on this travesty by the referee, and then you have to go home. And why don't you take it from there? So, um, and losing, and then there's actually this this kind of famous picture with within the, the Notre Dame um, uh, football lore of me sitting on the bench with my hands in my, with my, with my head in my hands and I'm crying. And unfortunately the next day, um, I discovered my mom's body, um, at home. So she had died of a heart attack. What happened was after the game, I talked like I talked to her every day or yeah, I talked to her every day and you know, we, we kind of talked about the game. And, you know, kind of had to explain to her that it's okay. And we lost. She felt terrible. And then I hung up with saying, bye, mom, I love you, which I did every time I, I talked to her. And she said, bye, honey, I love you too. And then when I got home the next day, um, she wouldn't answer the door. And so I knew something had happened. So I actually broke down our door and I saw my mom's body lying in the hallway. She had died of a heart attack. Um, after that's for some time after the time I talked to her until uh, I got home. So you could imagine, you know, somebody raised me in this crazy chaotic environment for 21 years and all of a sudden she's gone. Didn't have anybody else. 
So it was a really, really tough time. But, um, you know, she was an amazing woman and she, uh, hopefully she raised me the right way that I could kind of um, use what she taught me and be the type of person that she wanted me to be. But what's interesting was when I went back to school, um, like about two weeks later, everybody like freaked out and they're like, why are you, how are you in school? Your mom just passed away. And I was like, well, if I would have left school or dropped, took a semester off, my mom would have beat the crap out of me because <laughs> like, I mean, she wanted me to graduate. And I mean, that, that was the most important thing. She didn't care about, I mean, she enjoyed going to the games, but that wasn't her thing. Like, every time we talked, first thing she said was, how are your grades? What's going on in school? You know, we talked more about um, life than anything. It was funny. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time when I was there and um, I would always talk to my phone at, or I was always talking to my mom on the phone at night. And the next morning at breakfast, um, you know, we, we live in separate dorms and we go to have breakfast and she's like, you know, Hey, who were you talking to last night? And I was like, well, I was talking to my mom. She's like, yeah, but I called you for like three hours. You're on the phone. Like, who are you talking to? And I was like, well, I was talking to my mom. And she's <laughs> like, who talks to their mom for that long? And I'm like, I do. And it was like, it was so weird. I was like thinking like, this is definitely not going to work. If she has problems with me, like talking to my mom on the phone for three hours, like this needs to say it didn't work out. But it was just, it was a funny story because like, you know, there was no call waiting back then. Sure. And, you know, I just imagine her kind of calling and hanging up, calling and thinking instead of coming to my dorm, you know, she's going to assume that I was talking with some other chick. But in reality, I was talking to some literally a true mama's boy. <laughs> uh, we don't want to take up too much more of your time to talk about your uh, uh, we're going to skip over your pro career. You were drafted by your hometown Chicago Bears. Actually, there's a really good video of you sacking my favorite uh, quarterback, Dan Marino. I've been a dog. Oh, yeah. Fan. Yeah. I've been Dolphins fan. I've been a Dolphins fan since uh, since Super Bowl six. Nice. Sorry about your 1985 season. That's speaking fine. Of another, speaking of another Orange Bowl loss. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, uh, man, but I do want to ask you one quick question before, we, and I want to take a minute to talk about what you're doing now, and then hopefully squeeze <laughs> in the five questions and and then let you on your way. Um, was pro football in any way kind of a letdown after attending Notre Dame? <laughs> It's so funny you say that. Um, so speaking to all of my non-Notre Dame friends, and this is going to sound really bad, but to answer the question, yes. But um, I, I hope that their college experiences was great, were, were great. And if you had a chance to play on a professional level, then you thought those experiences were even greater. But coming from Notre Dame, kind of explain, you know, we, we talked a little bit about all those awesome experiences like that, that doesn't happen on the pro level because it's a job and you don't have, you have rabid fans, but you don't have 110 rabid fans screaming your name or yelling for you to lose. So the emotional aspect of college athletics um, is, is there, which is not on the pro level. And then all of a sudden, if you're playing for a team, who's had some success like Notre Dame, the, it's, it's, you cannot compare it. And I can only sum it up by saying when my first year, my first away game, um, I'm getting off the bus. 
I forgot who we were playing. Playing, I forgot who we were playing. And I, I get off the bus, and, and I there's a, a veteran who's in front of me, and I tap on my shoulder. And was like, "Hey, are we at the right place? Where are the fans at?" And he looks at me kind of like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "Well, there, there's no fans here. Like, dude, we're in whatever city." I'm like, "Well, yeah, don't we like aren't the aren't the bear fans following us?" And he's like, "Chris, this is not Notre Dame." And I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> like literally. I mean, Notre Dame was like up here, like playing on the pros. I mean, when when you compare it like that, like, wow, like that's tough. So literally any, I mean, the idea that you've had a chance to play college football on the highest level and the next level not even comparing, but it's great, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I made a ton of money, it was awesome. But it wasn't like it wasn't college. It wasn't Notre Dame for me. Please take a few minutes, if you'd like, and talk about what you're doing now. Most people don't know that uh, Chris Zorich uh, got his law degree. Hey, absolutely, yeah. So this is so after I retired from my pro career, which I thought was kind of amazing, I decided to that I want to be be a lawyer. So I went to law school and. Um, Interesting, what 20, let me see. So, so what 28-year-old retiree from the NFL decides to go to law school and gets his butt kicked every day in the classroom? <laughs> that was, I, I was thinking, like, this is, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? But finished, graduated, um, didn't want to become a lawyer um, after my experiences, but loved the practice and actually was a great opportunity for me to get into college administration. Um, did that for several years. And now I'm actually working for an executive search firm here in the Chicago area. And it's great because I mean, we, we cover not only sports and education, but we're doing financial services. Um, we, we do a lot of professional services, technology. Um, and it's one of those things where we're kind of a one-stop shop. And what makes us unique is that, so our name is Comar Partners and being the Irish, having the, the Irish blood flowing through me, um, uh, Comar is Gaelic um, for, for partnership and collaboration, which is what we do at Comar. And so if there's a, a, an individual in a certain industry that needs help, um, we, we kind of assist them. And so it's just a great opportunity for us to do the best we can for our clients. And so I'm excited because I get a chance to be involved in a whole team aspect again. And, you know, our managing partners are great. Um, I'm one of them. And I think we just do a bang up job. So if you have a chance, check us out at comarpartners.com. We end all podcasts, all Leaders and Legends podcasts with the same five questions. And so if you're ready, we'll try to get through them as quickly as you can. I promise there's no grading. Yes, no, four, 12, yeah. About, <laughs> did I answer them all? <laughs> Number one, what was your first job? Uh, wow, my first job. God, these are great questions. Um, my, I was actually a maintenance person at a church. 
Second question, and this is you're going to have to go a long way to beat Reggie Brooks's answer on this one, if memory uh, serves. Uh, what was your first concert? Wow. Actually, not really. Um, wow. So, uh, these are good questions. Um, actually, there's this jazz, um, it's an interesting story, this uh, jazz uh, 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 player, um, he's actually a pianist, and his name is Marcus Roberts, and he's blind, and he's a phenomenal player, and I had a chance to go backstage and meet him, and it was awesome, it was awesome. I believe That's a good question. Reggie Brooks's was Prince. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah, he said it. He said it with it was, his answer was actually really funny. He did a very good job in answering that one. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? That's interesting. Any book? Okay, so this is again, this is the influence of being a mama's boy. Um, my favorite all-time book is a book called *The Giving Tree* by Shel Silverstein, mm -hmm. and it was, so it, it's a book, and I have an opportunity to kind of read books to kids and all sorts of stuff. That's, that's the first book I bring. And it's just this great book about the love of really humanity. And it's kind of what I envisioned the love that my mom had for me. And it's literally a relationship between a boy and a tree. And it's, it's phenomenal. Um, my, I, my mom used to read it to me when I was like five or six, and then I got older and I read it to her, and it's just literally one of my favorite books. Let's say the title again real quick. The, the Giving Tree. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Wow. Ah, um, uh, wow. I'm fascinated by history, so this is like, and this is not fair because there's a thousand things I'd love to be at. Um, really, and I would have to say, um, during the kind of prehistoric times, because like I'm fascinated by how things were back, quote unquote, back in the day. And I would love to have kind of witnessed, you know, the idea that there were other beings on this planet. Like there were very large mammals and pterodactyls and everything on this planet. And it kind of, I would love to have kind of experienced that. And so like, I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan, <laughs> which I, I totally think that if they can find a mosquito that has the, the blood of, of, a, uh, of a, um, a dinosaur in the system that they can go through the the, uh, the sap from a tree. I, I totally believe they can do that. <laughs> sure they have that but. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, discuss anything you want, whom would you choose? Wow. Wow. That is... That's a good, outside of obviously having two more hours with my mom. I mean, that's kind of a given. Sure. Um, but. Uh, Anyone living today? 
Wow, that's a really, really good question. Um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, living? Living today. I'll probably say Jimmy Carter, um, huge Jimmy Carter fan. And what he accomplished after his presidency and just kind of the, the whole idea of, you know, you, you look at who, what a servant leader really truly is. And there's a thousand things he could have done, but like, I think he just had a birthday recently. I think he's like 98 or something like that. Yes. Uh, very close, but he like spent the day like building Habitat Humanity Houses, which he's done for like a thousand years. So just kind of being able to kind of sit there and I, I read um, a couple of his books, but the idea to, to understand kind of what the, the servant leader truly is. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, your headquarters for Notre Dame football on the east side, by the way, and right. McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been All-American, College Football Hall of Famer, and easily one of the most beloved members of the Notre Dame football fraternity, Chris Zorich. <laughs> Chris, thank you so very much for your time. It's an Rob, absolute Chris, thank you guys, man. It's, this, is, this is a lot of fun. And thank you. Yeah, you had some, some great questions. Great questions. Thank you, sir. Take care. You got it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.